understand by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I'll pray. God, I just again thank you so much for all that you've revealed here in your word for us. It is the revelation of your very self that we might know you, that we might walk with you and worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I pray that our hearts would just be yielded to you, that you would indeed have the freedom, God, to speak to us and to work in us all that pleases you. We're here before you, God, as, as just empty vessels wanting to receive, and that you would be honored, God, in our lives. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming to the end, but Paul is holding the best for last. And this chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is a long chapter, 58 verses, all on the subject of the resurrection. It would seem like a long time ago now, but when we started 1 Corinthians back in chapter 1, Paul said in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And now in chapter 15, he's focusing on what that gospel is. He's going to tell us that there are two primary aspects to the gospel. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And I've come to think that Paul is trying to tell these Corinthians that every single problem in their church is either a result of misunderstanding and misapplying or failing to apply the death of Christ or their failure to apply the resurrection of Christ. It all comes back to the gospel. I would hope that everybody here today could clearly articulate what the gospel is. If you're saved, then you should be able to clearly say what the gospel is. I think that Paul probably could have told us what the gospel was before he was saved because he knew what the Christians were preaching and he rejected it. And he was going around persecuting them, which he alludes to, in this first paragraph of chapter 15. But he wasn't saved, so just knowing the facts of the gospel is not enough. 
But we have to place our faith in Christ. I thought I knew the gospel pretty well. I'd worked in summer camp for many years at His Hill and had been privileged to see a lot of kids come to faith in Christ. I'd been involved in different evangelistic ministries prior to His Hill. And so I'd, I'd grown up in a, with a dad that was pretty evangelistic and he made sure that we kids were involved in evangelism and that we knew the gospel and how to share it. So you can imagine how um, chagrined and, 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 and disappointed and shocked I was when I was in Bible college and in my senior doctrinal review that I had to pass in order to get out of that school um, I was meeting with two of the faculty, as every student senior did before they graduated, and the faculty, one faculty member was to grill me on theology, and, um, and he was the, became the, the president of that university, and so he was quite sharp and intellectual, and I was expecting all kinds of deep theological questions, and his first question to me was, what is the gospel? And he asked me to, to role play and to pretend that I'd come up on a car wreck on the interstate and I was the first person to stop. You know, the passenger or the driver had been thrown from his car and was dying in the, in the median. And I come up to him, assess his condition, realize there's no hope for him. And so he needs to hear the gospel. And he says, give this man the gospel before he dies. And I had to role play and, 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 and I wasn't very comfortable with that. And he said, give the man the gospel. You're stalling and the guy is dying. And so I, I, and so I said, sir, you're a sinner and, 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 and Jesus died for your sins. And, and unless you receive Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And this man looked at me and he says, and that's it? That's all you have to say to this man? And I'm going, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. If you don't receive Jesus, then you're going to go to hell. And he goes, that's it? And he repeated for me what I had said. Is that it? And by this time, I'm thinking, I will never graduate from this school. I'm going to be here the rest of my life. And I said, I can't think of what else there would be. And so he told me. And it was a little bitty office Three of us sitting in this office, our knees are almost touching each other, such a little office. And he yells at me, you left out the resurrection. The resurrection! You haven't given this man the gospel. You've told him that Jesus died for him, but you have not told him that Jesus is alive. You have not given him the gospel. And I said, I'll never forget. You better never forget! burned it into my mind. And he was right. I thought I could share the gospel. Obviously, I knew that Christ was raised from the dead. But somehow I didn't see the resurrection as being essential to the gospel. It is not in addition to the gospel. It is the gospel. As Paul's going to say here, Christ died and was raised. One half or the other is not the gospel. Some people focus all on the death of Christ. Other people focus all on the resurrection of Christ. It is both. And I am convinced that every problem that we have in the Christian life is because we are denying 
or ignoring or failing to apply either the resurrection or the death of Christ. So Paul starts out and he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. In other words, I want to remind you of what you already know. So this is a sermon to remind us as well. I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you. So it's not a different gospel. I haven't amended it since I was with you all those years ago. I haven't come into greater enlightenment now, which is often, and again, read these verses, and if you have any knowledge of the current cults and religions of the world, you'll see how different these verses are. There's no progressive revelation here. It is the gospel, the eternal gospel, the gospel that has been the same gospel since Genesis chapter 3. Never been any additions to it. It's been fleshed out more. We know the name of Jesus now. We didn't know the name of Jesus back in Genesis. We understand that. But the gospel is the same gospel. Paul hasn't received additional enlightenment. The gospel which I preached, which also you received. You just receive it. It's not a message of what you work for. It's not a message of what you have to do. This is why it's good news. The gospel means good news. Why is it good news? Because all you have to do is receive, believe. There is nothing for you to do. That is totally contrary to every religion and every cult that man has ever devised. There is nothing to do but to receive. That's what Max was talking about in his missionary moment this morning. You received, and in which you stand. Romans 5 says that we stand in the grace of God, having been justified by faith. You received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Now here the verb tense is very important. Because Paul could have said, by which you were saved, and that would have been 100% true. But his emphasis here is not on their past salvation, but their present salvation, or what we would call sanctification. So in other words, the gospel is not just a message of how to be saved. To put it another way, the gospel is not a message just for unbelievers. Paul is saying that gospel is for Christians. You are saved. Christians are being saved by the truth of the gospel. Christ died and Christ lives. That is not only how you get to heaven, that is not only how you get your sins forgiven, but that is how you live life today in the truth, in the reality, the present reality that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and risen from the grave. You are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He's not questioning their past tense salvation. He's not questioning that they are saints of God. Remember chapter 1 starts out to the Corinthians, the church of God, those who are called, those who are the saints of God. He knows these people are saved. That's not what, he's, what, the, what the issue here is here. He is saying 
that if you are presently holding fast the, the, the word which was preached to you, the gospel, then your, your faith that you past believe, your faith is a current faith, and it is not a faith that is empty or vain. I don't want to tip my hand too quickly, but it's important to help. If you just jump ahead to verse 10, Paul's going to use the same word about vain. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. So he says, the question is, is your faith vain? Mine's not, Paul says. God's grace to me has not proven vain. But I'm worried about y'all, Paul's saying. Where is your faith? Is your faith only in that your sins are forgiven and you get to go to heaven one day? Wonderful, Paul would say. But what practical difference does that make today in your life? And for many Christians, it makes none whatsoever. I love being a camp counselor for all those years. Because one of the things that I would do is I'd start out every Sunday night when I've got a new group of boys in my cabin. <coughs> and I'd ask them two things. Number one, I'd say, how, do you, how can you know whether or not you would go to heaven when you would die? Because I just want to get an idea of where these boys are coming from. Seven boys in my cabin. How can you know whether or not you would go to heaven when you die. And I'd listen to their responses. And then I'd ask them, if you're sure that you would go to heaven when you die, what difference does that make today? And I had a lot of pretty sharp kids who would say, I know that I can go to heaven when I die because I have trusted Jesus Christ to save me. I have received Christ and I've placed my faith in him. Amen, hallelujah. What difference does that make for today? And I never got anything but blank stares back from those kids. Nobody ever had an answer for me. And I think Paul would say, is your faith in vain? This saving faith, this gospel message is not just to get us to heaven. If it does not have a present reality in our lives, if it is not changing us in the way that we live, then our faith is in vain. He's not questioning our salvation, but he's saying he is questioning the reality of our faith for today. And having looked at all the problems that the Corinthians are demonstrating in their church, sexual immorality, lawsuits, Divorce, on and on. You go, clearly their faith is not making any difference in their lives. Their faith is in vain. No wonder Paul's going to spend 58 verses talking about the practical difference that the death and resurrection of Christ ought to make in our lives. So verse 3, he gets to it. This is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance. There's nothing more important than this. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is of first importance. There is nothing else that will absolutely radically transform a person's life than the truth of the gospel. It is of first importance. How important is it to feed people? It's important. How important is it to make sure people have proper shelter, good clothing, medical care? It's important. But it is not of first importance. First importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ above everything else. Too many times the church has made what is of secondary importance first and what is of first importance secondary. This should also be what's true of each of our lives. We driving into church this morning, we're listening to the new president of Moody Bible Institute um, share his testimony and his passion for evangelism. Man, it's inspiring and convicting. But this, again, is not just about evangelism. The gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It is also for the Christian. We should be, have a first importance that we personally are living in the reality of both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that this is what we want for everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. Live in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. It is of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He didn't contrive it. He didn't make it up. But he received this from God. That Christ died for our sins. Really? Having trouble dying for other people's sins? What I mean by that is, again, this is so radical to think that God entered this earth, became a man, and lived for the purpose of dying. He came to die. We live for the purpose of not dying. Right? Everything in our lives, as unbelievers and sadly even as Christians, in one way or another, is focused on the absolute imperative that we not die. That's why we justify ourselves. That's why we lash out at people. That's why we break relationships. That's why we focus on the things that we focus that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I want to be happy. I don't want to be hurt. And all of life becomes, I won't die. And here comes Jesus, who came to die. That is absolutely different than every other person in this world. Nobody lives to die. Jesus did. He came into this world to give himself for us. Dying to self. And dying for us. Christ 
died for our sins. He had no sin. We were his enemies. And he gave himself for us. Nothing could be more profound. And this was in accordance with the scriptures. The Bible said that God would send his son and he would die as a substitute for us and our sin. Jesus predicted it, but it is foretold in everything that the word of God says. And he was buried. Why does Paul throw that in? He died. Of course he was buried. There's always been people who have said that the death of Jesus was only spiritual. And that he did not die physically. In fact, he just ascended up into heaven. The Catholics say that's what happened to Mary. And there are different cults that say that's what happened with Jesus. He never died. He just went up into heaven. So why does Paul stress the burial? Because it tells us that Jesus died in every way that we die. We die spiritually, we die physically, and Jesus experienced the totality of death. So there's no aspect of death that Jesus has not experienced and conquered. He died a complete death. In every way that we would ever die, Jesus has already been there. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. He is alive. And that's what gives the believer hope. And that's what should give the unbeliever great, great fear, trepidation, and dread. Because they will have to stand before him. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. So for those who have received Christ, who have believed in Christ, this is hope. Jesus lives. And we are made alive and we will live with him in glory one day, but we live now because Christ, the living one, lives in us. And for the unbeliever, this is judgment to come. And the scripture said, he would rise again from the dead. In one of the Psalms, it says, He will not abandon His Holy One to Sheol, His body to decay. Throughout the Old Testament, there was prophecy of both the death and resurrection of Christ. This was nothing new. But Jesus prophesied of His own death and resurrection. No one else has ever done that. This is an absolute in accordance with Scripture, not contrary to Scripture. Our salvation, our, the gospel message in which we have believed, if you have, is absolutely grounded and rooted in historical reality. No other religion can say that. Every other religion is built upon conjecture, philosophy. It is built on myth fable, but only the Christian faith is rooted in history. 
There was a time in which God entered this world, became a man, lived a sinless life. There was a time in history when he died on a cross and rose again from the dead. Christianity does not rest on a set of ideas or creeds, but on facts. The gospel is not the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is a series of facts concerning a person. (coughs) And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, as one scholar has written. (coughs) The gospel does not tell us something we must do. The gospel tells us of someone and what he has done for us. The Stoics believe that the soul merges into deity at death, which means the destruction of personality. We might call that the New Age movement today. The Epicureans believe that everything is material. There is no existence after death. And Plato taught the immortality of the soul. There's a process of soul transmigration, which is what Hinduism would teach or reincarnation an early form of that. There's no basis for any of those. Pure human philosophy. No basis in history, no actual proof for any other theory of what happens after we die. But the resurrection is a historical fact. And by that we know we have not believed in vain. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And we know what comes after this life. The gospel is not a theory. It is not an idea. It is not a religion. The gospel consists of objective facts. On the other side, consider some of the religions of the world today. Mormonism. Joseph Smith was a character. I did some reading this week on Joseph Smith. His father was a, um, somewhat, it seems, of a professional um, treasure hunter. He was not of good reputation in his community. He spent much of his life just looking for treasure. Well, son took after father. And the son claimed that he had a special stone, that when he put this stone in a hat and looked into the hat at the stone, that the stone would show him where there was treasure that could be found. And so people would hire him, take him around the country to find treasure. Not surprisingly then that he claims that he found golden tablets with Egyptian hieroglyphics and was given a special set of glasses by an angel named Moroni and that he could with those glasses on, interpret the hieroglyphics, and another man wrote down those hieroglyphics, and we have the Pearl of Great Price and later the Book of Mormon. Really. The first edition of the Book of Mormon was said to have been inspired by God. The second edition of the Book of Mormon was an edited, corrected version, and it was also said to be inspired. Go figure. So many contradictions in the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price to what Scripture says. Our faith doesn't rest on contradictions, on speculations, on tablets that no one else has ever seen. 
Our faith rests in historical reality and historical events that happened in exact keeping with what Scripture said. Christian science is beyond belief. Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of Christian science, also like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, in the 19th century. It's a busy century for cults to come to the front. Mary Baker Eddy wrote a book called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. She required her followers to regard that book as a divine revelation and her religion as a higher, clearer, and more permanent revelation than that given 18 centuries ago. There's a direct quote. And yet, over 100 pages of that book are plagiarized from someone else. And it is said to be, she said, a divine revelation and that you could not understand Scripture apart from it. Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, claimed that his writings were indispensable to the study of the Bible and that to study the Bible apart from his inspired comments was to get into spiritual darkness. He was taken to court and convicted of of perjury and fraud because he claimed to be a scholar that knew Greek and Hebrew. He claimed to have had higher degrees. He claimed to have been ordained as a pastor. And there was another pastor who wrote a track disputing all of those claims. And Russell took him to court for libel. And he lost soundly. None of those claims were true. He had never been ordained. He'd never gone to school beyond age 14 years old. He did not know any ancient languages. And yet he says that his writings were indispensable to understanding the scriptures. These are just the claims of men. And most importantly, they're all dead. None of them rose from the dead. Jesus Christ was absolutely true in everything he ever said. And everything he did and said was absolutely consistent with Scripture and did not need another book to interpret Scripture. But most important of all, he's alive. He rose from the dead. After Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, it says that, He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. We wouldn't have known this except Paul revealed this to us. There's nothing in the Gospels or in Acts that tells us about this, but this was common knowledge apparently to the early believers, that there was a special one-on-one appearance between Jesus and Peter. Would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that one. And then he appeared to the twelve. Twelve was not a precise number because Judas was already dead. He had hung himself. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And by the way, Paul says, most of them are alive when I'm writing this letter. I remember reading once and uh, somewhere and, and a historian said, putting those statements together to Peter, 
Well, there's no way to prove that. To the 12, now you've got eyewitnesses. To 500 people at the same time, now you have ironclad, irrefutable evidence like nothing else. In fact, this one historian said there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is that Alexander the Great ever lived. Our faith is not a leap in the dark. It is grounded in historical reality. Then he appeared to James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. I take it that's a second time because we know from the Gospels he appeared to them in Jerusalem and then later at the Sea of Galilee. And last of all, as if it were one to untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I'm not the, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. A lot, I, you know, there's debate on this. It doesn't make a hill of beans difference probably. A lot of Christians think that Matthias, the guy that was elected in Acts chapter 1, was the 12th apostle. Paul, I take it, is saying here that he is the 12th apostle. We don't know for sure. Maybe there was 13 and Paul's number 13. But he definitely, and there is no question, was one who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ and was designated by Jesus as an apostle to his church. The two tests of an apostle that the New Testament gives us is one, they had to have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And second, they had to have had the power to perform miracles. There are a lot of people today that are claiming to be apostles because they claim to have the power to perform miracles. But if they're claiming to have seen Jesus raised from the dead, I got a problem with that. When did Paul see Jesus raised from the dead? I don't think this was the road to Damascus experience because all he saw then was a light and heard a voice according to the Acts account. He was blind. The light blinded him. And he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then it says after he had been healed of his blindness and he began to preach in Damascus, he was persecuted and almost lost his life there in Damascus, so he fled and he spent over two years, in total three years, in Arabia and then back in Damascus before he finally went back to Jerusalem and presented himself to Peter and the other apostles. And during that time in Arabia, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and unfolded the scriptures to him in even a greater way than what he had already had come to understand. So I think that's where Christ appeared to him and taught and ministered to him. I am, not the, I am the least of the apostles, for I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And he did big time. By his own reckoning, Paul says that he was a violent aggressor and that he went about breathing murderous threats. He calls himself a blasphemer in one place. But I want to be careful and not accuse Paul of too much it's very common today for Christians to say Paul was a murderer. Paul never said that. Best I can tell. He says that he was a violent aggressor 
and that he was breathing murderous threats. He had letters with him to go to Damascus and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. So he was arresting them, and I imagine he was treating them pretty badly on the way back, but he was, he had, there's no record that Paul ever killed anybody. Maybe he was a murderer, and we're not told about it, but I don't want to accuse him of that if that wasn't in fact the case. But he was bad. But, verse 10, and that's something that every one of us can put in our testimonies. I was, but, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's a different man. He is a new creature. It's not, I am what I was. I am what I am. God has changed me. By God's grace, I am different. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. So he saved me, but I didn't stay in the same condition. Because you think about it, when a person gets saved, if you, you know, whatever character flaws we had when we were, before we were saved, are those same character flaws we take into salvation. They're, they're, and again, I'm not saying there's no change whatsoever, but if, if you had a tendency toward outburst of anger and things, more than likely those things are still going to be in your life after you're saved. That's the sanctification process. We all tell young people when they're getting married, as they're looking ahead to marriage, don't think that your character is going to change when you say the vows. The character that you're building before you're married is the character you will take into marriage after you're married. When you receive Jesus Christ, there is a lot that changes. But that doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you are not going to have any issues with sin any longer. But by God's grace, we should expect to be different over time. And Paul was. His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, because it's not a works gospel. And he's like, he said, oh, he says, let me clarify. Getting saved was not, I didn't bring me into a life of passivity. I labored more than anyone. Yet, not I, but the grace of God with me, and the inference is, The grace of God was laboring in me, inspiring me, motivating me, so that that's why my life is different. That's why I'm laboring even more than all the other apostles is because God's grace is working in me. I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to go out and start church, as Paul might have said. But it's because of what God is doing in me. I'm willing to suffer Because of what God is doing in me. I'm not the man that I was because of what God is doing in me. Whether then it was I or they, I or the other apostles, so we preach. We preach Christ died, Christ lives, and Christ is the difference for life today. And so you believed. You did not believe, in other words, just to have your sins forgiven so you could go to heaven. You believe so that God can make a difference in your life today. Wake up, Corinthians. 
Why are you in such bad shape? What have you believed? Is your faith in vain? Did Jesus die? Then why are you spending your life living for yourself? Is he alive? Then why are you acting as though he, there's, no, there's no power to your life, that you just have to be the victim to sin in this world? Christ died, and Christ rose again from the dead. I just want to summarize some of the things here, that just clear things that Paul's saying. None of these are profound, but there's so many things in these 11 verses that we can glean. I'll borrow from somebody else first because his stuff is better than mine. The gospel is not a message devised by the minds of men, but it is a revelation from God received by the apostles and delivered to men by them. Number two, the gospel is the only message by which men are saved and by which they stand. Nothing else can save a person and cause him to stand. The gospel is good news concerning the grace of God, which informs men concerning the only way they, as undeserving sinners, may experience the forgiveness of their sins. The gospel message is based solely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins on the cross of Calvary, who was buried, who was literally and bodily raised from the dead on the third day. It is solely based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not about us or our works. The sacrificial death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ are events which were prophesied in the Old Testament, foretold in the Gospels by our Lord, and fulfilled by Him as God's promised Messiah. The Gospel is the message which is of the highest magnitude of importance. The Gospel saves and keeps only those who receive it and hold fast to it by faith. The Gospel is false and our faith is vain if any element of it is proven to be false. He's going to speak more to that in the next paragraph. The gospel is established on the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as witnessed by more than 500 people. The gospel is not new. It is the fulfillment of Scripture. The gospel is grounded in history. There were eyewitnesses. This is not fable, myth, or legend. It is objective, historical, verifiable fact. It is good news because it is the answer to death. I was reading one person who says he, he, there's the quickest way to find out about a preacher is to listen to him give a funeral message. And you'll find out what's important to that guy. Whether he has any hope, where his hope lies. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again from the dead. It is the only answer to the universal problem that mankind shares, the problem of death. The resurrection is the answer. The death that he died was absolutely complete, spiritual and physical, so there's no aspect of life that Jesus is not sufficient for because he rose from dead, the death completely. The resurrection is the hope of mankind or it is their final judgment. In all of this, 
it should go without saying that because we're now 2,000 years removed from the death of Christ and his resurrection, the authority and reliability of Scripture is absolutely essential. Not only did Jesus die according to the Scriptures and rise again according to the Scriptures, but our faith, the, the, the validity of our faith in Christ who lives is grounded in the reliability of Scriptures. How do we know? How do we know? Because we weren't there. How do we know that Jesus died and rose again from the dead? Because the Bible tells us so. So if we can't trust this book, then you can't know that your faith is not vain. Well, we're only 11 verses into a long chapter. We'll go a little faster with them. But this is the introduction. It's been so good for me, and I plan on, on concluding summarizing 1 Corinthians by giving a final sermon. And my topic will be how the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ influences, should influence every aspect of the believer's life. So I would just challenge you to be thinking on that. Every single issue that Paul has raised in this church is either because a people are not living in the reality of Christ's death, which means that we too do not live for self. Life is not about us, where they are not living in the reality of his resurrection. Every problem in life comes back to the gospel. We either do not believe that he died for our sins, or we do not believe that he lives. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that our faith today would be a true faith, that we're not hoping in ourselves, we're certainly not hoping in government, we're not hoping in our church, in our spouse, in our families, our jobs, our hope is Jesus who lives. I pray, O oh God, that we would be living in the reality of the gospel day to day. That Christ gave himself for us, dying for our sins. That he was buried. Every aspect of death experienced. And he rose. Every aspect of death conquered. And that we would truly live from Christ who lives in us as we've placed our faith in him. I pray that if there are any that have not yet recognized the truth of the gospel, that they would hear today that it is good news, that their sins have been paid for, and there is a Savior who lives to save them, and that they would place their trust in him for that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.